This Bee Podcast Network show is presented by IXL. Loved and trusted by more than 1 million teachers, IXL enhances your teaching and takes work off your plate, so you can make an even bigger impact on your students. IXL delivers personalized learning across a comprehensive pre-K through 12th grade curriculum, including math, language arts, science, and social studies, and helps you assess student performance through actionable real-time insights. Strengthen daily instruction, close knowledge gaps quickly, and set every student up for success. If you want to bring IXL to your school, you can learn more at IXL.com backslash B-E. That's IXL.com backslash B-E. We're proud to be sponsored by MyFlex Learning. MyFlex Learning is a scheduling platform that helps middle and high schools meet the individual needs of all students. Schools can easily create and manage time for flex blocks, activity periods, RTI, therapy, and teacher appointments, and much more. With its built-in accountability tool and reporting features, MyFlex Learning solves your challenges around getting kids where they need to be and understanding how flex time is spent. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com backslash BE to learn more and receive $500 off the first year. That's myflexlearning.com backslash BE. This is Dr. Karen, and you're listening to the DeFacto Leaders Podcast on the Bee Podcast Network, where I help pediatric therapists and educators become better leaders so they can make a bigger impact with their services. With over 15 years of experience supporting school-age kids with diverse learning needs, I'll share up-to-date evidence-based practices, my own experiences, and guest interviews designed to help clinicians, teachers, and aspiring school leaders feel more confident in the way they serve their students and clients. I'll cover a range of topics designed to help you support students' emotional and academic growth and set kids up for success in adulthood, including how to support language, literacy, executive functioning, as well as how to help IEP teams working together to support kids across the day. Whether you want to learn more effective strategies for your therapy sessions or classroom, be a more influential leader on your team, or find creative ways to use your skills to advance in your career, I've got you covered. Hey there, it's Dr. Karen, and welcome to episode 127 of the DeFacto Leaders Podcast. In this episode, I am bringing back an old conversation that I did several years ago, back before I even had a podcast, with my colleague and mentor, Dr. Christy Borders. Christy was a member of my dissertation committee, and I actually asked her to do this interview a while back when I was providing support for doctoral candidates who needed help finishing their dissertations. And we talk about a number of topics. Christy's background is in working with the deaf and hard of hearing population. So I did want to leave that part of the conversation in this episode. But really the reason that I'm sharing this today is because I've been getting a lot of questions about whether or not it's worth it to go back and get your doctorate if you are 
a teacher or if you're a therapist like an SLP, social worker, psychologist, and you're considering some kind of a career pivot or a change or just wondering what's next for you. So I have my doctorate in special ed. It's an EDD, which means that's a terminal degree. So that means that I could get a tenure track position. So I am a doctor of education, a little bit different from a doctor of philosophy, which would be a PhD, but it is very similar. And the reason that I get this question so often is partly because I think that there are a lot of people in clinical roles just really wanting to advance in their education, but not knowing if it's a good choice from the financial standpoint or if it's going to open doors for them. So I did want to share this conversation. What I always tell people is if you are considering higher ed, if you're considering something that requires a doctorate, obviously that is going to make sense for you. But if you expect people to roll out the red carpet for you just because you have a doctorate, you are going to be disappointed. You certainly are responsible for navigating the job search process, understanding how to interview, and understanding how to network and sell yourself if you are going to be getting a degree that's going to put you in contention for positions that tend to be a lot more competitive. So that is certainly a specific skill set. It is not one that I had when I graduated. And it is something that has taken a lot of work to build those skills. So that is something that I like to tell people that yes, getting a doctorate is one way that you can build up a lot of experiences and build skills. But there are certainly other ways that you can do that without getting a doctorate. A lot of people gain those skills through internships or self-employment or projects. Um, sometimes people start a business and they're able to build up a portfolio that way. Sometimes they learn on the job. And of course, if you have an area that you're really passionate about and you know that you don't technically need a doctorate, but you just want to get it because it's something that has always been a life goal, it might make sense for you. I do like to tell people all of that. That is my additional commentary on top of this conversation, but I wanted to share it with you again because this is something that has been on my mind lately. It's something that people ask me about. So as I was recording this conversation, I did not have a podcast, but I thought I'm gonna save this someday so that I could use it as an episode in case I ever do launch a show. So I'm excited to be sharing it with you now. A little bit about Christy. She is the director of the Illinois Tutoring Initiative. She did start off as an assistant professor at Illinois State University. She was in the department in a professor role when I was going through getting my doctorate and when she was on my committee. And I will say that I would not have finished my dissertation had it not been for her. I had several people on my committee that were statistics experts. Christy was one of them. And with that type of project, it kind of takes a village. A lot of times you might have one committee member that is an expert in one thing, and then you've got to go to another committee member and get support in another area. And so Christy really came through for me at a critical time in my dissertation process. I remember kind of panicking and trying to figure out how I was going to get all of my statistics run. But like I said, she really came through for me and was a great support 
One thing that I will tell people if you're considering a doctorate, be sure that you pick a good dissertation committee or capstone committee if that is something that you have to do for your big project at the end of your degree. So a PSA to everyone who is in that stage, make sure that you have a good committee that will support you. And I am so grateful that I did because it did make the the doctoral experience a positive one for me. I know that not everyone is so lucky. So as I always mention, I do talk a lot about career development in the School of Clinical Leadership. It is a program that is designed to help school clinicians be the executive functioning lead and really emerge into a leadership role when it comes to providing those comprehensive supports for students in their buildings. So if you do not feel like students are getting adequate support in their social emotional learning, if you know that they need behavioral supports in their classroom that are tied to executive functioning issues, and really this is something when we're thinking about universal design in K-12 education, thinking about executive functioning is a really important framework that we can use to do that effectively. That's not just going to help students that are currently getting special education services, but that's going to help the entire student body. So even if you are somebody who is primarily responsible for providing special education services, you can be someone who starts that initiative that really does something that helps a lot of the students in your building. And you can start small with many projects, starting with those students that are on your caseload. But over time, if you're consistent, it can be something that can have a really big impact on your building. So to learn more about how you can start doing that, how you can be a leader on your team, as well as get some additional support that's going to help guide you in your career and teach you ways that you can use your clinical skills in creative ways, in your career to advance to the next stage, then check out the School of Clinical Leadership. To learn more about the program, you're going to want to go to drkarendudekbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. Now, please enjoy this interview with Dr. Christy Borders. All right, so this is Karen Dudek Brandon here, and I am with my colleague, Dr. Christy Borders, and we are going to talk a little bit about higher ed and making that transition and also working with the deaf and hard of hearing population. So can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Hi, my name is Christy Borders, and I come from a background of education for deaf and hard of hearing students and then eventually transitioned on to higher ed. So I taught for seven years in the public school system and um, in the clinical setting. I actually taught at Vanderbilt Bill Wilkerson Center for deaf and hard of hearing students and then went on to be an administrator at a school for the deaf in St. Louis, and then went on to get my doctorate. And obviously after that, transitioned into higher ed at Illinois State University. So, so what is one thing that mm -hmm. most people don't know about working with the deaf and hard of hearing populations? Well, my main research is really an area that not a lot of people know about the deaf and hard of hearing population, and that is that almost half of students that are deaf and hard of hearing also have an additional disability. So 
we used to just think just about deafness in our field, and now we have to consider additional disabilities that are comorbid that also impact that population. I also think people either think people who are deaf and hard of hearing can't hear anything, or they just assume that it's a decrease in volume, but it's actually the lack of clarity of speech, like there are holes in the speech signal, and that's what makes hearing impairment so impactful. So what, is there a common disability that also happens at the same time that you've seen? Are there certain ones that pop up a lot? Sure. I mean, obviously, if you consider how disabilities kind of disperse across a typical population, they disperse in a similar pattern for deaf and hard of hearing students. So disabilities that are considered high incidence, like learning disabilities, ADHD, different things like that are also common within the deaf and hard of hearing population. Um, interestingly, autism is actually thought to occur more frequently in the deaf and hard of hearing population. That's a particular comorbidity that I study more than others. There's also disabilities that occur um, in utero that are impacted with hearing loss. Surprising to me when I learned it that your ears develop in utero around the same time as your kidneys. Mm -hmm. And so students that have renal difficulties often also have hearing loss. And then there are disabilities that have hearing loss associated like CHARGE syndrome mm -hmm. has hearing loss as well as many, many other disabilities yeah. that go along with it. So. so a lot of the times, is it does it seem to be the thing that's causing the hearing loss is also causing the other disabilities like yeah. a genetic syndrome or mm -hmm. a lot of syndromes these days i'll be really honest you know there are just thousands and thousands of syndromes and if they're an in utero syndrome i mean you consider that there are many, many things developing at the same time, then yeah, everything is kind of impacted at the same time. We talk about a lot that oftentimes people make the mistake of thinking it's this disability plus this disability, mm -hmm. but it's not additive in nature. It's very much multiplicative. And so it makes the approach to interventions more complex. Mm -hmm. So when we think about people who can't hear or maybe can't hear well mm -hmm. and think about how we learn language through exposure or how we learn to read and write, how do, for, for people who have no idea about just how that process works, how do people with, um, with hearing loss learn to read, learn to write, and learn to speak? Right. It is a very long process, as you can imagine, and there are variables that impact that. For instance, if you have a mild hearing loss, you're not going to be as impacted as someone with a profound hearing loss who really doesn't have access to the speech signal. Mm -hmm. um, but if you think about it, what happens, and, and I'm, I can throw my own field under the bus here, we yeah. haven't done a great job about figuring out that question for for over 60 years, the reading outcomes for deaf and hard of hearing students have stayed pretty much the same. Yeah. Where a graduating 
deaf and hard of hearing student only graduates with a third to fourth grade reading level because it is so, so difficult. Like you said, typical children learn just from overhearing. So they learn how language works. And so, and the field of deaf education um, is politically I would guess anchored modality mm -hmm. anchored where so there are individuals who use maybe American sign language to kind of it's a, it's the workaround right? right you can't hear that language you can't pick up on language so instead we will sign and give you a mode that you do have access to so that's kind of one very far side of the deaf education spectrum. And on the other side, you have increases in technology. So you have improved hearing aids and, and cochlear implants, things like that. That goal is to fill in the gaps in that speech signal. And so then the same strategies would be used that are used with a typically hearing individual. But as you can imagine, the timeline is delayed because I tell my students all the time, we used to think if you got your hearing aids at six months or cochlear implant on a year, that you were only six months to a year behind in language development, but it goes so much further back than that. So we talk about how when your baby is in utero, it's already picking up on the super segmentals of speech. So get a dog while you're pregnant, right? It's that yeah. whole idea that if your baby can hear that dog barking in your belly, then it's not going to be as startling when the baby is born. Your child, when they're born, already knows their mother and their father's voices. And so you're already even further behind in terms of learning that. So whether you're doing American Sign Language to kind of do the workaround, mm -hmm. or you're doing um, listening and spoken language, it's really about more repetition, um, being very explicit and not assuming that someone's going to, a student's going to pick up yeah. speech or language through listening, and then converting that to reading <laughs> is an even longer road. For a long yeah. time, deaf education focused on um, whole language. Mm -hmm. That's a really hard approach. You can't teach every word that they're going to use. There's also um, pockets of instruction in deaf education that use cued speech. So it's not a language modality, but it's um, visual access to the speech signal and to phonemes. And that has had pretty positive responses um, in transitioning students to reading. There's so that is, you're using a symbol to represent a phoneme mm -hmm. because they can't hear the, the actual phone that is being produced. That, like that's they can't exactly hear the sound. Right. So you have to give them another symbol to represent that. The right, phoneme. and even let them um, know what they're missing. Mm -hmm. You know, it's very, um, and, and it's, it's a very kind of political hot button right now, but the School for the Deaf in Illinois, Illinois is one of those pockets that 
that does use uh, cued speech. There's a school in Chicago who does, and the Illinois School for the Deaf has started some recent research to try to supplement, obviously they use American Sign Language there, but they're starting to supplement using cued speech and seeing some really great um, outcomes related to the transition to reading and writing, which is, mm -hmm. you know, the, the long-term goal. There's also systems, I know Peoria School District uses a great system for even the teaching of syntax. That yeah, uses those I was gonna yeah, the, because the, and so there's lots of things we could talk about here, but American Sign Language has a different grammatical right. structure. So switching a child from American Sign Language to English syntax can be tricky. And so back in, back in the day, we <laughs> used um, a system called the Fitzgerald Key. And it was on the top of every deaf and hard of hearing classrooms, uh, on, on top of the chalkboard, right? And mm -hmm. it would have symbols. And now um, that system's been updated and it's uh, called grammar graphics. And what we do is that you teach syntax through a system of symbols and then you code those sentences and then students can really see and understand how syntax works in the English language. So basically what you're doing when you're working on things like phonological awareness to teach reading or writing and working on sentence structure, you're just pairing mm -hmm. some type of visual cue or symbol to show, like you said, show what they're missing because they can't hear it as well or at all. Right, right. That's exactly right. So the use of visuals has always been kind of a key component for working with deaf and hard of hearing students who capitalize on strength, right? So um, obviously that gets really complex if you have deaf blind students, yeah. but for deaf <laughs> students, we tend to capitalize on the visual system to then try and make sense of the signal that they're missing or is likely even if they're not missing it very distorted we yeah. talk about a lot of the times like even just the concept of plurals right? right very very early in language development that a typical hearing child would understand the difference between cat and cats mm -hmm. but for a hearing impaired student even with a mild high frequency hearing loss all they hear is the c and the ah. So they don't hear the T and they definitely mm -hmm. don't hear the TS. And so they're, you're trying to teach this concept between one little fluffy and many fluffies, but they, yeah. they don't see it. There's no concept there whatsoever. Right. So a lot of pictures and a lot of visual supports. So when you have kids who maybe are thinking about getting a cochlear implant or, or thinking about maybe they're using ASL and they want to learn English syntax mm -hmm. with the cultural aspect. Are some families resistant to that? Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, there, I would like to say that in 2018 that there's not a um, political or cultural issue but there is it's kind of the nature of deaf education i tell my students this isn't because of our time in 1880 the historical 
Milan conference happened when all the deaf educators of the world came together and they took a vote and decided that oral language and oral methods were the most beneficial for deaf and hard of hearing students. Well, there was outrage even in 1880 mm -hmm. because there is a cultural identity for deaf yeah. individuals in that American sign language. And I obviously kind of live in both of those worlds, which is a, which is a, a blessed place to sit, but it's a, it's a difficult decision. I will tell you that 95% of deaf and hard of hearing students are born to hearing parents. And so a lot of times that cultural component isn't inherently there. Mm -hmm. So in those early, early stages of learning and intervention, we introduce all of those modalities to parents. Early interventionists are charged with making sure parents are aware of American Sign Language and the deaf culture, as well as cochlear implants and, and that end of the spectrum and all of that that's in between, right? It's a whole spectrum of communication modalities. Mm -hmm. But hearing parents hear that my child can get a cochlear implant and hear and be just like you, which isn't right. necessarily true, but so hearing parents don't necessarily have an issue with that. It's the deaf culture side that worries, and rightly so, that their culture is being taken mm -hmm. because less and less students are going to deaf schools where that is the cultural basis for deaf and, deaf and hard of hearing individuals. So, so would it be accurate to say that a student who let's say that they're deaf and they have deaf parents that they see it more as a culture and not a disability is Absol that absolutely in fact when um i struggle to say deafness with additional disabilities because that's actually mm -hmm. wrong in our field so um deafness is not viewed as a as a disability especially from a cultural component it is truly its own culture and so what the terminology that we actually use in the field now is for the population i was discussing is deaf with disabilities mm, because deafness okay. isn't considered a disability right yeah. and that's where you get that i'm sure you've heard of the concept of capital d deaf versus small d deaf and capital D is the indication for culturally deaf versus okay. a small d which is medically deaf. Okay. Um, so there are differences there and it's, it's interesting to be a professor in special education, right? Where we teach person first language. Right. That applies to everyone except individuals who are deaf and hard of hearing. They're deaf first because that's their cultural identity. Interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I never, I, I noticed that distinction, but I think we are so trained to put the person first, mm -hmm. but, but that's interesting. Um, do you find that your, your college students who maybe don't come from that culture have a hard time with that concept? Just like, why wouldn't you want to hear? I mean, is that something that's hard for prospective students to grasp? 
I, I think sometimes that that is hard for them to grasp, although I can proudly say that I work at Illinois State where we are truly, we are um, a comprehensive deaf education program. So we teach from the deaf culture component all the way to listening and spoken language. We feel like our responsibility is to teach teachers that can teach across that spectrum. Mm-hmm. And so our students actually kind of fall on the other side of the spectrum. Most people don't fall into deaf education as a career. Mm -hmm. There's some personal connection or you took a sign language class and you loved it. And that's how they generally come into our program. And we very early on connect them with the deaf culture in our community and expect them to do multiple hours a week signing with native deaf signers. And so they become enculturated into that deaf culture and are actually most of the time more resistant to the other side because they really they respect the deaf culture and they're spending time within the deaf culture and learning from deaf adults who are talking about the importance of that culture. And that's like a human contact and they really believe in preserving that culture for people. And so when we have to switch them to, this is going to be okay too. They're like, I don't know. Yeah. Interesting. (laughs) So do they have exposure to the listening and spoken language program that's um, housed at Metcalf, which is connected to the university? Yep. Yep. So what we try to do at ISU's program is that we make sure that they have experiences across across the communication modalities. Mm-hmm. And so they have to have a signing placement at some point that may be the deaf school that is very much American sign language more than likely it's probably a total communication program which tends to be more signs in English word order Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's still you have to know how to sign or it's simultaneous communication where you sign and you speak at the same time and then they also have that exposure to Metcalf and other oral and Um, listening and spoken language placements. We actually added, and it's because I'm a mean professor, we (laughs) we have a sign proficiency test that they have to pass in order to progress through our deaf education program. But I said, well, if we are comprehensive, then we should have them also know that same amount of information on the listening and spoken language side. And so we have a very intense... Um, exam that they have to pass in their speech class as well, where they have to identify speech errors or listening errors, and then come up with tactile and visual strategies to correct those um, errors. So all of these special ed teachers that you are preparing are really well-versed in the different language modalities and have a good sense of how language works. And, and for those of those of you listening who aren't familiar with ISU's campus, there is a lab school attached to the university. So they have the elementary school and then they also have a high school, which is kind of a, a magnet, would you say, for students. There is the, the listening and spoken language program and then also for students with visual impairments. Is that mm-hmm. correct? 
Mm -hmm. Yeah, we have a preschool program designated for listening and spoken language. And as those preschoolers sometimes matriculate into Metcalf, you can see some of our younger students who tend to have that listening and spoken language modality. And then we have in between, you know, later elementary all the way through the high school, we have um, individuals who are deaf and hard of hearing who tend to use more of a signed modality. Mm -hmm. So it is, it's, it's a wonderful gift for us that we yeah. have students right across the street that our college students can interact with. And most of the time our college students try to take opportunities to do before school or lunch care or something. Right. So they get the chance to interact with deaf students on a, on a regular basis. So. Yeah. So it sounds like they have a, a very wide range of experiences going in. Um, so just to switch gears mm -hmm. from your, your experiences with the deaf and hard of hearing populations. Mm -hmm. So now I was just curious, what made you decide to transition to higher ed? What led up to that decision? Yes, it's a, uh... It's a journey for sure. <laughs> um, I was so blessed to secure a position as a teacher of the deaf at the Vanderbilt Bill Wilkerson Center, where I was hired as a total communication teacher. They needed a teacher who could sign for the students who were getting cochlear implants and had good hearing aids, but were still kind of not able to transition fully. So they still needed assigned support. So I took that position and I worked there for several years. And while I was working there, it became very clear to me um, it was not an experience I was planning on, right? Yeah. I was working with audiology students, speech master's students, and the deaf education students from Vanderbilt. They would come over from Peabody, and they would watch our therapy sessions on a regular basis. We had the weird clinical experience of teaching behind a one-way mirror. Right. So surgeons, parents, teacher, anybody in the community could come and watch us teach. And working with those college students was, I was very nervous. I didn't even have my master's degree. And I thought, mm -hmm. I can't do this. Yeah. But I quickly learned that field experience and working with students in this real moment was a very impactful way to change education for deaf and hard of hearing students. And so I, I don't know if this is... I, this probably sound weird, but I had a moment when I was sitting there and I realized I could impact 10 students a year teaching and loving teaching, mm -hmm. or I could teach 10 students to teach 10 students and the impact right. factor really started to make sense with me as I worked with these college students. And so that just led to me going to get my master's. My undergrad was at Ball State University. Okay. So their program is a bilingual, bicultural program. So very much focused on American Sign Language and the cultural component. And here I was teaching in a cochlear implant center. And I thought, I don't know that 
but I know there's so much right. more to know. And so I went and got my master's at the medical school at Washington University in speech and hearing sciences so that I could learn that other part. And at that point knew that a doctorate was in my future. And also because my student population was so complex, there were just these little puzzles in my classroom mm -hmm. with charge syndrome and autism and all these really complex disabilities and that was what I just it was very much field and experience driven it was working with college students can increase that impact and these students who are little puzzles need an answer mm -hmm. so that's why I decided to go on and get my doctorate yeah so I wanted to jump back just yeah I was interested in something you said. You referred to your sessions as a therapy session, but mm -hmm. you were you were certified as a deaf and hard of hearing teacher. I know that a lot of the the people who are on my email list and yeah. a lot of my readers are speech pathologists and feel like there is there needs to be this distinction between teaching and therapy. Mm -hmm. But even mm -hmm. as a, a teacher, you felt that you were doing a therapy session. I mean, is that, does it just depend on the type of session, the type of student or what you're working on? I would say that, thank you for catching that language piece. It was definite, I was teaching in a hospital clinic. Okay. And so um, I really feel like I use that term, no other teacher of the deaf probably does unless yeah. they also teach in a clinical setting. But my students weren't there all day, every day, like a traditional teacher. I was, I was one of two teachers of the deaf in a staff of 70 speech language pathologists. Mm -hmm. So they were truly therapy sessions billed as therapy sessions in the hospital where Tuesdays and Thursdays I had my four-year-olds from nine to 12 and then mm -hmm. I'd have my fourth graders from three to five in the afternoon or so it was um not consistent all day long teaching it was definitely different therapy sessions for different groups of students that had like characteristics so so was there some overlap in what maybe you would do and versus the audiologist or a speech pathologist or other person working there did you have some overlap in roles or yes yes i can say that had i not had that experience i'm pretty sure i would not have developed into the teacher that i am now pushing is like the a joke relative to our speech language pathologists were in and out of that classroom or that that wasn't a classroom it was one little room in a hospital right but um they were in and out of there. They were coming and doing art at our table with us. And then they'd pull students out for one-on-one -on -one mm -hmm. therapy sessions. And we were so blessed if a cochlear implant had an issue, we'd just send them across the parking mm -hmm. lot to the audiologist. It was very much a consistent teaming. We, I was on the oral habilitation team there and we were all collaborating all the time for our students so it was an incredible experience so when we say push in is kind of a kind of a joke meaning like just go in for one class and leave is is yeah, really and, just and I'm, just kind yeah. of a limited thinking where it's like it's not just about you physically just being in there it's more about 
are you collaborating while you're doing that or while you're doing whatever you're doing? Yeah, absolutely. And, and when I say the joke, it's because it, to call it that was, is just not even fair, mm -hmm. right? That, that limited thinking about pushing because I mean, and we all shared an office together in the basement. Yeah. So we were constantly, constantly strategizing on what can we do. And I was learning at a crazy rate because I didn't know much about speech. And so my speech language pathologists were telling me, this is what I want you to try to get him to, to do. And they were teaching me these behavioral interventions from our autism specialists were teaching me how to put reinforcement in my classroom. It was not an hour a day or a 30 minute session. It was a constant all day long collaboration in that setting. So, so what would a typical therapy session look like? I know it probably varies for, mm -hmm. for students, but was it mostly an oral rehabilitation session or did it just kind of depend? Well, I had from literally the parent-infant group mm -hmm. <laughs> where it was parents sitting on couches and we'd right. bring snacks. And so from that session all the way up to individual therapy sessions with 20-year-old college students mm -hmm. at Vanderbilt. Mm -hmm. So they looked very different. So I will um, tell you that where who I taught the most, which okay. were the, Yeah. The, what would a typical therapy session look like for your most comments? Yeah. So my most common were those preschoolers or early okay. kindergarten. So that three to five-year-old group. And what we tried to do is it, it'd be about three hours long. And we tried oh, wow. to make the session where they were in my room mirror what they would eventually be transitioning into. So they would come in in the morning and we would do, you know, the typical circle time kind of thing. We would do reading, art, snack, all of those typical preschool kinds of activities. I will say that the difference is that if I had four students and one of them was a signer and one of them was oral and one of them, you know, lots of different things that what we did was we always tried a system of least to most prompting in our sessions. So I, we always have those speech hoops because we're doing oral habilitation. So I would lift up my speech hoop and I would say, um, like if I'm reading a book, I would say, where is the cat? or something like that behind there. So individuals who could access with listening only could attempt. And then I would take that down and then I would say it where they could read my lips. And I'd say, where is the cat? And then if no response, or then I would say, where is the cat? And so we would kind of build on those prompts so everybody had access in their most complex receptive ability. And so it was that, all day long, <laughs> whether it was stories or snacks or, and then we had, we had teachers, um, assistants in the classroom who would take 
constant data. So we had data sheets of every single session, every single day, and we would track their receptive language, their expressive language, their oral, uh, their listening, how many prompts did they need. And then we would take our data sheets and the speech language pathologist would take their data sheets from their individual one-on-one -on -one sessions. And when we wrote our reports for insurance, which were sometimes every three yeah. months, um, yeah. up to treatment plans, which would be six months to a year long, or the IEPs for the school district, we would take all of our data from those, and we co-wrote, which, again, the collaboration was unbelievable. I want to take a quick break here and talk about the School of Clinical Leadership. As we're talking in this conversation, getting a doctorate is definitely something that is a marathon, not a sprint, and is something where if you are really passionate about a certain area, it could be a good decision for you. Part of understanding what is right for you in your career journey is allowing yourself to really emerge into a leadership role regardless of what your job title is right now. And one way that you can do that if you are working in a school system on a special education team is to get your team on board with providing support in the area of executive functioning in your building. This is gonna be something that can make a huge impact on the student body, and it all starts with the first step, that first intervention, whether it be that you start a collaboration with one teacher and that leads to another teacher getting on board, and then maybe you are supporting an entire department. Maybe you're getting someone else on the IEP team to join you in your efforts. It all starts with the first person taking that first step, and I help you do that in the School of Clinical Leadership. To learn more about the program, go to drkarendudekbrennan.com backslash clinical leadership. Now, let's get back to the interview. So going back to now that we've gone into how that actually looked, just going back to that higher ed piece and talking about how you were in that setting, obviously having an amazing experience, but realized that you could spread your knowledge way further if you went back. Mm -hmm. And I know that a lot of a lot of clinicians, a lot of teachers struggle with that decision of I'd love to go back, but how do I make that happen? So what would you tell someone who is thinking about going back for a doctorate? whether it be a clinical doctorate or PhD or, but they're really just struggling with how do I do this? Like time, money, family, like what would you tell people who are on the fence about that decision? Right. Well, I would say this and I probably have a different perspective. <laughs> yeah, that's fine. I would say if this is keeping you up at night, then you need to figure, you need to find a way to do it. Um, if you're kind of like, that'd be cool to, to be a doctor and you're not really, it's not keeping you up at night. It's not a constant thing that's going in your head where you're going, this is, yeah, it's no longer a choice. I think that that's kind of where that line is for me. I think there are always ways to make it work, but it's passion driven, yeah. right? So I took a huge pay cut <laughs> to make that decision. But our family made that decision because 
I was never going to be satisfied working in a job where I wasn't able to move on and work with teachers. And so I think it was driven by passion. And I always say that people should never pay for a master's or a doctoral program. They're, they're like 2% of the world's population, right? So you should never pay for any of that. You should, um, there will always be programs that offer tuition, at least. Now I'm saying I'm still paying for the living piece. Right. But the tuition piece, there are always ways to do that. You just have to really think through, are you willing to move? Are you willing to kind of put yourself in an uncomfortable situation in order to be able to move that way. I'll be honest, I have the utmost respect for people who do a doctoral program on a part-time basis. Mm -hmm. I don't know how you all do it. It's yeah. incredible. I knew myself and I promised my husband, because if I would have done it part-time, it would have taken me like five, six years. I had a baby. I, yeah. It would have taken it me, me eight years. <laughs> yeah, I, this, this could have happened to me. It could have been an eight year process. And so we really looked at it given um, kind of who we are as a family. And I said, here's the thing. I'm either going to be stressed out and it's going to take us eight years or we just bite the bullet. And I promise you, I will finish in three years. And wow. I did. So that's, that's what we did. We took, we bit the bullet and we found a program that would pay a hundred percent out of state tuition and we went and that's how we did it. I think passion drives a doctoral program. You, you yeah. know this, it does. And if you are not passionate, a doctoral program is torture. Yeah. <laughs> it's just torture. You have to have, I tell my students this all the time, first semester doc students, if you have more questions than answers, you're going to be fine in a doc program. Interesting. Like you have to yeah. be constant questioning your field, questioning, questioning, questioning. And if you're in that cognitive space, then you'll have what it takes to make it through a doctoral program. So I know that, again, a lot of, there's a lot of different options out there. There's clinical doctorates for therapists. There's, there's an EDD, a doctor of education. There's a PhD. So you're saying that at least in special education, which uh -huh. is what both you and I did, there is a way to get it funded by someone else, which is what I did and sounds like what you did as well. If you are willing to do the research and Mm -hmm. find a way to make it work. <laughs> mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I did the exact opposite where I took, I took eight years to do the director's special ed program and the uh, special education doctorate, but also found a way for someone else to pay for at least the tuition cost. Obviously yep. there's the fees, but that's significantly less. Yep. So no, I completely agree. And, and I did the same for my master's. I, I went to Wash U, as I said, and mm -hmm. it was had Obercotter funding that covered that tuition, which is really important at Washington University. <laughs> but I found um, that there are ways. And, and I went to University of Cincinnati and I met with their doctoral coordinator and, and I just said, look, 
I, I want to do this, but I can't pay. And they found a way to do that. Now, I mean, I can say that I don't know what Illinois, I, Illinois State doesn't necessarily have those kinds of things available. I think you find that available more at Research One institutions, or you find organizations that are willing to do that. A lot of times school districts will help to yep. For And that's how a lot of our students at Illinois State do it um, or teach a course and then get tuition mm -hmm. remission. And so that's part of how you learn to piece it together. Right. The living expense and the cut that you take sometimes, like mm -hmm. for me, I decided to go full time and so walked away from my full time position to take a GA. Um, but that's just what our family decided to do. Mm -hmm. So. Can you clarify what, for people who aren't familiar with Research One and all those different levels, what that means? Sure. Oh, sorry. I did. Oh, I no, that's okay. Um, so a Research One institution are institutions that focus is primarily on research. So if you think about uh, medical schools tend to be Research mm -hmm. One, um, larger institutions in Illinois, to, to give you um, reference, the U of I is an R1, a Research One institution. So their professors are expected to produce more research than they are to focus on teaching. At Illinois State, we're what's considered an R2 institution. So our focus is on we need to be doing research, but we also focus on teaching. So our professors teach three courses every semester rather than two courses and then research times. So and then there are teaching institutions where mm -hmm. those individuals are expected to focus on teaching. And so they teach four courses a semester, which gives very limited time for uh, research. So mm -hmm. there's kind of a continuum and the university itself has a focus on you know, do we expect more research? Do we expect kind of a middle ground or do we expect more teaching from, mm -hmm. from our faculty? So really it's more about the understanding of different types of universities, knowing what they're, really what they're about. And mm -hmm. so just knowing which ones might possibly be able to make that work and, and just asking, like being yeah. willing to ask for, for that help and look yes. for it. Absolutely. Ask for the help, look for the help. And the other thing about research institutions is they tend to have grant funding. And grants that are coming in for their researchers have built into them graduate assistantships. Um, and graduate assistantships always also cover tuition. And so that's one way in which you tend to see those opportunities cluster in mm -hmm. research institutions because there is um, generally some grant funding available for that. You also have to ask yourself when you're thinking about this decision about what is your goal? Right. Um, like why do you want to get the doctorate? Why do you even mm -hmm. want to do this? Right. So if you want to do it because you want to teach in higher ed, then something at an R2 institution is probably gonna be fine for what you wanna do. If you are passionate about research or finding out how to get to the answers that are constantly going mm -hmm. through your mind, then maybe a research one or more focus on research in your program is something to think about. I will also say, 
because I came from an institution where we kind of, we were given the freedom to create our own curriculum for mm -hmm. our doctoral program. So there were only, there was like one course a quarter that we had to take. Everything else, we designed our own programs. So I was a very heavy research emphasis and took an insane amount of research courses. That's what my entire doctorate was research methodology courses, except for the one course a quarter. Mm -hmm. Or other individuals focused on how do I teach literacy or how can I focus on um, culturally responsive practice or all those different things. We, we were given that as kind of a build your own while there was a program, we could decide where we wanted to focus. At Illinois State, it's um, a prescriptive program. Right. And so there are different programs at different types of institutions that really um, can hit your goal if you're, if you're looking at right that option so yours was a phd program no mine was actually an edd an program EDD, as well. just like isu yep. what is the difference between an edd and a phd for those people who aren't sure about that distinction right and and i honestly i, I don't know the they haven't really they're not very clear about that are they not very clear about they're that considered that. they're both considered terminal degrees they're, they're both considered terminal degrees, and it's a Carnegie distinction is um, the organization that makes that distinction between if you have an EDD or a PhD. And, and uh, I mean, I can say that some people feel as if a PhD is more research-focused mm -hmm. and an EDD is more uh, methodology-focused or applied-focused yeah. um, versus clinical research. And so... I, I would say that for the most part, that might be true. I decided to focus my entire EDD on research. So in some ways I'm like, well. You, might, you basically have a PhD. Basically. <laughs> so it's like PhD, right. PhD, very research focused, EDD, research and teaching leadership. At least that's what I felt like ISU was, which mm -hmm. is what I did. And then clinical doctorate, which is Obviously, you always focus on research, but highly emphasizing that clinical piece. Right. And I really feel like clinical PhDs and EDDs are focused. I, I think that the difference in my mind is that PhD research could be on, on a cellular level, right? Yeah. You go EDD and clinical, you're really focused on applied research, mm -hmm. real world problems for right. real world people. And so there's a difference in the way and you approach the research the same, but there's a difference in who your subject would be or how mm -hmm. you would approach that. Where here, you're kind of finding the answer to a problem and hoping that some applied researcher is going to do it over here. Yeah. So I think yeah. it's the difference in applied versus less applied. That kind of leads into my, my next question. Uh -huh. So we have scientists over here, and then we have people who are actually working with students, clinicians, teachers. Do you think that there's a rift between the two or a huge gap? I don't know that a rift would be the word that I would mm -hmm. use, but I but maybe a gap. I think definitely there's a gap there. And, and I love to spend time with scientists on the other side to mm -hmm. point out 
that what you're doing here has to be able to eventually be applied mm -hmm. on, on the other side. Um, I love one of my favorite researchers of all time right now is Aaron Shield, who does research on um, linguistics in ASL. And he, every time we talk, he says, Christy, you know, I sit in a lab and I look at videos and I analyze that you are the applied person. And so I think, um, and there's lots of research that points to a research to practice gap. Yeah. And, um, so that's research about research. Basically. There's research about research. There's research there about this great research is happening, but we don't know how to transition that into yep. real meaningful contexts for people. And I think my favorite, favorite, favorite place that I go every year, Dr. Bach and I go to the Neurological Disorders Summit. We get invited to go and we go to this as educational individuals in autism. So every room has a different neurological disorder that they focus on autism, um, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's, every, all these different things. And so they say, Hey, you do research in autism, come. And we are literally the only, <laughs> the only educators there and everyone else is a scientist and we don't get a minute to sit down. And it is the coolest thing because so they're all, very open to how do I get my research out there? Very open. And they want to hear constantly. They're like, tell me how this looks in the classroom. Tell me what you do in the classroom. But I think that so often people who sit on that clinical side are perhaps intimidated by yeah. the other side and they aren't really sure how to, you know, I mean, there's this, I think there's, interest on both sides, mm -hmm. but kind of a fear about how do you enter into that other space. And so I would encourage anyone to go to, and I, this is kind of my soapbox these days, but mm -hmm. go to a conference outside of your comfort zone. So don't only go to the one that you've gone to every right. year. Take the chance to go to a very medical driven conference and spend some time with people who are on the other side because that will impact how you're going to move your practice anyway. So mm -hmm. interesting. So with, and this just piggybacking on that, when you have these, these brand new teachers, clinicians that you're working with that are about to graduate, Mm -hmm. What is, if you could had a room full of you know, brand new college grads that are about to go work in the schools with people with disabilities or, or in clinics, um, whatever their chosen setting is, what is the number one piece of advice that you would give them just going into their careers? Oh, oh boy. I think my number one advice is that you still have to learn. Mm-hmm. I think that sometimes what happens is that we get our almighty degree and we are going to be the authority in our classrooms, in our clinic. We are now an authority figure. And I think that humility in that there's always more to learn is very, very important 
to think about. I think be confident in the skills you have been given, mm -hmm. but understand that there are always multiple perspectives and sides to a story. And that parent perspective is probably the most important. Mm -hmm. And so I think that that's probably the, the number one thing that I say to new teachers or new clinicians is, you know, I'm embarrassed at <laughs> some of the stuff that I did before yeah. I was a parent. I mean, I used to get so upset with these parents. How could they not send that homework home? How could right. they or not? And I make these assumptions. I'm so embarrassed to say that, but I would make these assumptions that they just didn't care. Mm -hmm. And now I have three kids that are typically developing and I can barely get through a night. And so I really assumed that I was the authority and that they were wrong. And that that was a disservice that I was doing to my students and to my families. And so I think really just admitting to yourself that you you may not know the full answer. <laughs> you may not understand yeah. that full context is, right. is I think probably my number one take home is just take a step back and listen, mm -hmm. listen, listen to those families and, and you will gain more than you than you can ever imagine. Now on the flip side, is there bad advice that you hear being given to brand new clinicians and teachers? Is there something that you would tell them to just ignore this piece of advice? <laughs> I think I would tell them my, my number one advice, and this is advice, but it's kind of bad, like just don't do this. If you are a teacher, do not go and spend time in the teacher's lounge. Interesting. Like, absolutely not. And ac actually, another piece of don't do this that I believe in wholeheartedly is don't read a comprehensive file on a student before you meet them. I actually have the practice of not, you, know, you skimmed the IEPs, skim the goal pages, don't read anything else. Don't read present levels. Don't read any of it before you meet your students because labeling theory is a real thing. And so the worst thing you could do for your students is to come in with an assumption and an assumption that they're not going to be able to do something is very, very, it could have a, a potentially very negative impact on your students. So don't, read that and assume that it's correct because students should always have the chance to recreate themselves in your space and with you. And so don't read and <laughs> make assumptions about your students and don't spend time in faculty lounges. And the reason that I say that, and this is, I mean, my dad was a teacher, so he mm -hmm. told me that advice when I graduated. Um, it's very true because teaching and being a therapist is a stressful job. It is. And when you're stressed and you finally get that hour to go in the teacher's lounge, most of the time that's not a positive, let's talk about how great our students are. It's really where we air our stresses and then that becomes kind of a petri dish of negativity most of the time. And so I say, stick your nose to your desk, keep your eyes on your students, and then don't make assumptions. So that's a way to survive in a field that can be really, really tough on a day-to-day -day basis. 
So when you're, I know a lot of people, that's like the exact opposite of some of the <laughs> advice you hear. They say, oh, you've got to socialize with your colleagues and go eat lunch with them. So how should we, how should you go about building that collaboration if you aren't, and, and again, I've also heard that the walls are thin. Be careful what you say about your students because people are walking by and mm-hmm, that kind of mm-hmm. thing. So how should you foster the relationships if you're not going to do the, the standard go eat lunch in the teacher's lounge type of thing? Right, right. I, I'm always a big fan of you can collaborate with without that. And you can, you can stop in and you can mm-hmm. heat up your lunch and you can say, how are your kids? How is she? I heard your husband was sick. You can still have those meaningful connections with people without having to kind of prescribe to um, what tends to become a event fest. Yeah you know, or to be committed to being very reflective on the fact that that's turning into event fest. And Mm -hmm. and that takes a really strong person, especially early on to be able to sit in that room and say, Hey guys, I don't think we should be talking like this. Right. I mean, that -hmm. would take a a really strong person and, and I, you know, more power to them if they can, but there's lots of conversation at copy machines and in the lunch line when you're going through to get your lunch or heating up your soup and then going back to get work done or to gather teams at lunch. I will say that one of the ways that we collaborated at Vanderbilt. And again, this is a clinical setting, so it's very different. But every Monday morning before session started at 8 a.m., we would do kind of a mock um, grand round Mm -hmm. where you pick a case and then everybody just kind of thinks through that case. And that's probably because we were at a medical school and that's what we did for cochlear implants that were coming in. We kind of grand rounded that. But if you can have a focus to conversations and so you bring people into your space or someone else's classroom to have lunch together and really approach it as kind of a grand grand round or let's be creative and think about Mm -hmm. this then that gives a focus to those interactions that could be positive and not turn into a negative yeah. conversation. Yeah. So more focused collaboration, not just random gossip. <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. I don't think gossip ever impacted a student. Right. In a positive not way. Not in a positive way. Yeah. And that is very interesting to not read the IEP because a lot of us are very type A and want to be prepared, but you're saying just go in there and go in there fresh or go in there cold and just get to know them and then look at the file mm-hmm. afterwards mm-hmm. so that you can truly be unbiased. Yeah. I mean, I, I really think if you had to, I mean, cause I get it, you have to look at something, right? right. So look at your minutes page and figure out how you're going to make that insane schedule that especially speech language pathologists mm-hmm. make. So you look at your minutes pages and maybe you look at the general areas on goal pages. Okay. So this is an Arctic kid. This mm-hmm. is a, you know, phonological processing kid. These are mm-hmm. all of these kind of general pockets to see right. who you group together. But I mean, I'm just going to say that probably most of you have received an IEP where you get it, you've read it, you assume one thing, and then you meet the kid and you're like, who wrote this? Yeah. 
And yeah. I think that a lot of times, and, and again, that labeling theory, they've done research where you give teachers a stack of information and you tell them just the label, just the diagnostic, yep. the diagnostic label. And they go in with assumptions on what a student can or cannot do. And I just think every student every year should have the chance to redefine who they're going to be. So that makes me really rethink my beginning of the year procedures because <laughs> I definitely have sent teachers some emails. This kid is on, in speech and this is their label and this is what you can expect. And I think this actually might make a lot of us feel a little better when we get busy and maybe haven't looked at the IEP or mm -hmm. haven't had time to touch base with a teacher that maybe it's a good thing to just see what happens. Yeah. I not place those expectations there. I think um, it's, it's always from a good intentioned place, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, teachers of the deaf have to do in services at the start of the school year to at least get Mm -hmm. teachers ready for this new equipment that you're going to be seeing in your room and there's going to be people in and out and to kind of prep them for that. And we even do like hearing loss simulations and right. things like that just to kind of give some, some perspective to teachers. And on, on one hand, I can really see the importance of that. On the other hand, I would love to do those a month after school starts. Yeah. Because I just feel like that those students deserve a chance to become a part of a classroom community without mm -hmm. assumptions being placed on them. So when, and I know in, in the district that I am in, sometimes we'll have the, the teacher who's going to have the student come mm -hmm. to the IEP meeting. And especially if, you know, if it's a student who has autism and they're nonverbal, right. probably want to give the teacher the heads up. Right, right, but right. How do, you, how do you find the balance between the two? If you are in a district that likes to have the teachers come Mm -hmm. to the IEP meeting so that they know which students are coming into their classroom or you do have certain students where it's like you have to to let the teacher know about certain Absolutely. how do you find the balance between those two I think that the and you're right I mean you it's you kind of you have to yeah. do both of those things and mm -hmm. so my favorite way to balance that is to have either student-led or parent-led IEP meetings hmm. And that you start, uh, my favorite way to start every IEP meeting is to rather than jump right into that paperwork. And I know that we all have really tight, but right. why, why not give that parent 10 minutes, you know, show us a picture, tell us about, you know, what does he like to do? What, you know, what are you going to do this summer? And then you get to hear the part, you get to hear a story about a kid that makes that kid a kid, a kid who's loved by their parent and not being presented only as an, as an issue within the classroom, right? You get that. I think that there are ways in which you can tie in that positive perspective on a student and the best person to do that in the entire world is that parent. Yeah. I think that a lot of times parents are it's like we've trained them to listen. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times we'll say, hey, do you have any questions? Or do you, do you want, uh, we'll say, do you want us to share our information first? Or do you want to go first? And they're like, well, you're the experts. Why don't you go first? 
because it's almost like we've trained them to think that they don't know what they're talking about when it comes to their kids. Right, right. Because we're the authority, right? Mm-hmm. And so I think um, I love every IEP that I've been in that starts with a, do you have any pictures? Yeah. See, you that's know, a totally different, that's a totally different question than like, tell us how your kid is doing or, because a lot of times they think you want it to be all technical and they feel like they can't give a perspective on the academic stuff because they're not, they don't think that they're as trained, but, Mm -hmm. but yeah, I think would reframe it. Yeah. Every one of them comes in with an, with an iPhone and I guarantee there are pictures of their kids on that phone. And that opens up that we're talking about the real kid, right? Mm -hmm. We're talking about, you guys went to the Discovery Museum last week and oh my gosh, he loves the water table. Are you guys going to go swimming this summer? And then it becomes a not an us versus them context. And I, I don't know, that's just my perspective on it, right or wrong. That's yeah. my thought. Yeah, that's really interesting. I think that'll be really helpful for, for a lot of people because we've all been in those uncomfortable IEP meetings where we're sitting there making awkward conversation or maybe the parent, maybe we've had some challenging interactions with the parent and aren't agreeing or, or whatever the situation, maybe that kid's just a, they think they're a bad kid or Mm -hmm. we don't focus on the, the positive aspects of them. Right. You know, and I will say, and this is my neighbors tell me all the time I was born in the wrong generation I think it's probably true. I should have been born in like the 50s or grown up in the <laughs> 50s. It's kind of, I still have some really, um, I would consider old school values mm-hmm. in the way that I like to work with people and just connect with people. Like we have the, this thing can't be at any table and mm-hmm. a rule in my house. But I really do think that um, things like home visits, mm-hmm are really important. And I'm really, really happy to see that that's kind of a new trend that's coming back that kind of left for a while. And now that pendulum is swinging back. Uh, My daughter's second grade teacher went and made home visits at every single student's house this fall. And it wasn't always houses, which I appreciated this a lot. She said, I just want 10 minutes. Mm-hmm. Just want to just want your child to be able to show me their favorite animal or their pet or their favorite toy. It wasn't even about let me check out your environment, but then but then she put in the letter, if that's something that you're uncomfortable with, why don't we meet at McDonald's at the Playland or why don't we meet at the park? And I want your child to have a connection with me and so that when they're talking about their baby brother, I've met their baby brother. When they're talking about, um, like Lila made the point of, let's make cookies for her, and um, I want to show her all my art supplies. And so then in her classroom, she knows in an emotional sense that art is her most favorite thing in the whole world, and it didn't have to come from a survey, right? Yeah. So, hmm impossible to do with your all's caseloads of 80, but I think that there could be, I, I think the most important families to do that with are the ones you've had a hard relationship. Right. Mm-hmm. I really do. The ones that are easy peasy, you don't, you know, those aren't the ones that take priority. You triage that and the ones yeah. 
in which you're having a rough go, maybe that warrants some time outside of this classroom space or this meeting room space where we're all already heightened, right? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. but it takes time. It takes time. It and that's why this, this um, field is so driven by passion, right? I mean, you've got to balance it. You've got to see your family at night too, but maybe it's worth seeing if you can spend 10 minutes at a Starbucks at 4.30 with a right. with mom. So. Well, I want to start to wrap this up because yeah. you've been really generous with your time, but I do have one more question. Yeah. Um, just being a person who has made a lot of career transitioned and obviously, you know, very high performing and successful. What yeah. do you do when you get totally overwhelmed or when you've been in those periods where it was like, you're just in the grind and how am I going to get through this? What's mm -hmm. been your go-to thing that's just helped you keep going? Mm -hmm. oh, great question. Um, well, I will tell you that my doctoral chair told me probably the best advice when I am just me and I can't stop. I would call her on my way home because I had a long drive and I would call her and I'm like stressing, stressing, stressing. And she'd say, Christy, put that thing away put it away for the night. Don't even look at it. Go have a glass of Chardonnay. That's my go-to. Yeah. Um, put it away for the night and take a break from it. And she would always say, and then when you wake up in the morning, you're going to know your answer. And I'm like, you know what? Neuroscience tells us that we can't grow a synapse unless we rest. And mm -hmm. so often when we are in that grind and so completely stressed out, we're not sleeping, we're not taking time for ourselves, we're not putting away the work for a minute and going to the park with our kids for a half hour. Um, there have been plenty of times when I am completely stressed out and I'm lucky that I have a husband who balances me in that way. And when I am very stressed, he'll say, there are no fires this isn't a fire. You need to go out and you need to spend some time with your family and just be away from it. And I think that we have to allow ourselves to take that break and then get right back to it. Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> but you have to give yourself intermittent breaks. You do. And then you have to also know because like I've got a huge report due on Friday, right? So I got to work, 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 work this week. But then right. once that Friday hits, I'm going to give myself Saturday. I'm mm -hmm. maybe going to give myself to the next Monday and then get back to work again. And I know speech language pathologists and by nature are very type A and right. very, very um, successful and driven. Mm -hmm. But there, there is another piece to life. And if you don't balance that out, you will be really burnt out. I tell mm -hmm. my kids all the time, doesn't matter how many books I've written at the end of my life. All that matters are those relationships. And so take those times to build relationships. That's my, my go-to. Great. Well, thank you so much for taking the time to chat with me today. Yes. Thank you, Karen. Thanks. Before you sign off, be sure to check the show notes. And remember to take a look at the School of Clinical Leadership. 
if you want to think of yourself as a leader now, as opposed to waiting for someone to give you permission, if you want to start putting comprehensive supports in place that are going to impact the students on your caseload and potentially the other students in your building, and you want to do it by focusing on executive functioning, then check out the program. To learn more, go to drkarendudakbrannon.com backslash clinical leadership. If you know someone who is using their teaching skills, their school administrator skills, or their skills as a clinician to make an impact in a creative way, I'd love to hear about them and consider interviewing them for the podcast. Or if you are interested in being a guest, then definitely reach out to me. All you need to do to give me a suggestion or to submit a request to be on the show is email me at talktome at drkarenspeech.com. As always, it helps me out so much to get this show into the ears of people who need it if you leave me a rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast. And if you found this information useful, please share it with someone who would benefit. Thank you so much for listening, and I will see you next time. Do you want to simplify your school's technology, save teachers time, improve students' performance on state assessments without just teaching to the test? You can do it all, but don't waste another minute. Head straight to IXL.com backslash BE to learn how IXL's research-based teaching and learning platform can help you achieve all these goals. That's IXL.com backslash BE. There are lots of solutions out there for giving students what they need when they need it. But when do they actually do all of those things? You need flexible time. When added into the master schedule, flex time enables students to get extra help or intervention, meet with teachers, make up work, get physical exercise, and try new enrichment offerings. If you're thinking of giving it a try, check out MyFlex Learning, which unlocks the benefits of flex time without the common challenges. Its intuitive design makes implementation and training a breeze. Make your flex time work for you. Visit myflexlearning.com BE to learn more and receive $500 off your first year. That's myflexlearning.com BE.